You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Well, last Sunday I was uh, so delighted to hear Azur preaching on Ephesians chapter 2, a passage of scripture that is just so powerful. What Paul does in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, he takes three chapters to do in Romans. There's so much biblical theological freight in those verses that he just crams into seven verses, one sentence in Greek. And then, in, 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 like I say, in Romans, he takes three chapters to kind of unravel that. And uh, I must say that whenever I hear Azar preaching, I, I can't help but go back to Thunder Bay. Sean Quinton is here this morning. It makes me think of Thunder Bay. But uh, I can't help but go back to Thunder Bay when Azar was converted in, uh, in Thunder Bay in 1997. And we baptized him in Lake Superior at Dorian Bible Camp, the camp that Sean was talking about, on, in Lake Superior, frigid Lake Superior. And uh, I, uh, I, I just was curious this past week, and I, and I looked up my journal. I thought, what did I write about? And so I looked it up in my journal, and I found out that on June the 15th, 1997, that Azar was baptized along with five others, and uh, I was thinking, what profound thing did I say about that moment in history? And here's what I wrote. It was overcast and cold, but very meaningful. <laughs> I read that and I thought, why am I keeping a journal? <laughs> I'm wasting a lot of time here. <laughs> if I can't look back and come up with something a little more meaningful than that, oh well. I think there are other meaningful things in that journal somewhere, but it wasn't that day, that's for sure. But the, the baptism was meaningful. Actually, I think what's more meaningful for Pat and I was some of the first sermons that Azar preached. And I remember distinctly one of them was uh, I, gave him, I gave him opportunity in the evening service because uh, he was a new believer. He was eager to learn how to preach, but... But he, uh, you know, kind of a little rough still on things. And so we, at that time, we had a morning and evening service. And uh, so I gave him the evening service on occasion. And, and one time he decided he would preach on sexual purity, which I think is a great thing for a young single man at that time to be preaching on. He did a great job, as I can remember it. But the thing about it was contextualizing, because at that time, at First Baptist Church in Thunder Bay, the evening service was populated with about three-quarters uh, old women and widows, and, and, and I wasn't sure if they really wrestled with sexual purity as maybe as much as he did. <laughs> or, so, I, I don't know. Maybe they did and I just didn't clue out. So, I don't know. But, um, I can't help. I'm sorry. I just go back in memory lane whenever Azar gets up to preach. And he's not here this morning, so I can talk about him. But. Well, let's take our attention back to the book of Ephesians. And uh, we're going to be looking and carrying on in the text that Azar uh, opened with last, uh, last Sunday in chapter 2. Powerful passage of Scripture. And there are two concerns that I have as I approach chapter 2 in Ephesians, verses 8 to 10. And, and there are really two sides of maybe the same coin. The one side of it is that I, I've been praying this week about those that might find the message offensive. And it's because of unfamiliarity. You see, the, the, the concept of the grace of God, if it's unfamiliar territory, can knock a hole in human pride that is hard to overcome. 
But the other side of it is that there could be among us some, because of the familiarity of Ephesians chapters 2, 8 to 10, there could be over-familiarity. And so instead of really having ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church this morning in this passage about the grace of God, that maybe you're not going to hear it. And so I, I pray that God this morning would, would open our ears to hear whether it's because of in unfamiliarity or overfamiliarity, uh, we need to listen to how this passage informs our idea of God. A.W. Tozer writes this. He says, Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about God or leaves unsaid. For her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. What do we want to say about God this morning and about God's message? What is it in this passage of Scripture that informs our idea of God and God's message? And so I want to look at it together. You'll notice in the insert in your bulletin, the blue piece of paper, that I just kind of highlight a little bit of what Azar preached last Sunday as he took us through verses 1 to 7. And the first thing that we see is the question being answered, what were we like, every one of us? What were we like before we met God? And then the Bible says we were dead in transgressions and sin. We were dead in transgressions and sin. Not lost, not, not uh, sick. In this passage, Paul is very clear. We were dead. In fact, the Bible presents the unbeliever as dead to God but a very much alive to sin, and he presents the believer as being dead to sin and very much alive to God. That's the way the Bible presents us. Now, we, you say, well, I don't feel that way sometimes. Well, just because you don't feel that way doesn't mean that's not really true about what your status is, that, that in Jesus Christ you were dead, buried, raised up, and now, as Paul just said in verses 5 and 6, you are seated with him in the heavenlies, very much alive to God and dead to sin. So what were we like? We were dead. Secondly, what did God do about it? Verses 4 to 6, as we talked last week about, but God made us alive. Even when we were dead in transgressions, He made us alive. That verse, that word is, is powerful. And not only did He make us alive, but, but then He raised us up and then He seated us. He seated us in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. That's who you are if you are a follower of Jesus. That's your address spiritually. You are in Christ Jesus in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father. And why did God do this? Verse 7 unfolds it. Why did God do this? He did it in order that He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It might burst your bubble here. Why did God do this? He did it to show the excellency and the incomparable riches of His grace. He did it for His own reasons. He did it for His own glory. He's at the center of His plan of salvation. Now that's not to suggest that His glory and the exalting of the riches of His grace to sinners does not mean that it's not for us. It's very much for us. In fact, when God is most glorified, we're most satisfied 
We live the highest life that we, we could ever live when God is given the most glory. So it's not a competing kind of goal. But he did it for his own glory. He did it so that he could demonstrate his love. One commentary in talking about chapters 2, 1 to 7 talks about it in, in the fa- form of Paul taking us from Death Valley down the lowest to the, the very peaks of, of a mountain. He, he describes how it's like Paul taking us from Death Valley in California, 280 feet below sea level, rising 80 miles northwest to the top of Mount Whitney over 14,000 feet above sea level. That's what Paul does in just seven verses. He shows man what, what humanity is, dead in transgression and sin. And then he ends by saying, but, but God, God made you alive in Christ and he seated you way up there in Christ Jesus in the heavenlies. What, this is the gospel. This is what God does. You see, God's heart is full of mercy. God's heart is full of love. He is fundamentally a God who loves to save. He's a God of grace. He's merciful towards sinners. He takes people who were spiritually dead like we were and raises us up to give us new life. And the question that we're going to answer now in verses 8 to 10 is, how does he do that? How does he take dead people and raise them up to give them new life in Jesus Christ? Let's take a look at our scriptures this morning and we're going to look at verses 8 to 10, chapter 2 of Ephesians. If you have a Bible, you could turn to it with me in verses 8 to 10. And I'd invite you to stand with me as we hear God's word read this morning. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. May God bless his word to us today. You may be seated. Perhaps we should back up a little bit before we jump into the how God does this. And we should ask, what is it that he saves us from? It's a fundamental question. What does God save sinners from? And again, Paul has already spoken of that in verses 1 to 5. He has talked in verse 1 about how he saves us from being dead in sin. He, He makes us alive. So he saves us from spiritual death, unresponsiveness to God. Secondly, in verse 2, he saves us from being blind followers of this world. Just like put a hook in your mouth and just follow the world. Just be led down the garden path. He saves us from a life of followership into this world and its degradation. As well, in verse 2, he, he saves us from the ruler of the kingdom of this air, of this world, who is Satan... And he saves us from being followers of him. Jesus said, if you are not for me, you are against me. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, then you are following Satan, whether you believe it or not. And then thirdly, fourthly, in in verse 3, he saves us from the power, the thoughts, and the desires of the flesh. 
the sin that, that uh, dwells in me as long as I am in this body, though I might be redeemed, I will deal with the flesh principle in this body. And he saves us from that. He saves us from that. And then finally, he saves us from being a child, in verse 3, of his own wrath. We were once by nature children, the NIV says objects, but the word is children of his wrath. So in other words, uh, what, we're, what God is, what Paul's saying here is that God saves us also from himself. As a holy God who must judge and punish sin, God designs the way. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So that's what we're being saved from. How does he do it? Well, the Bible says in verse 8 here, it says he does it by his grace. By grace are you saved. He does it by sending his son while we're yet sinners. He does it by his unmerited favor, his love that goes out toward the utterly undeserving that we are. And he saves us by his grace. The hardest concept to understand is grace. I really think that I will spend my lifetime seeking to understand and plunge the depths of the biblical concept of God's grace. Perhaps even as I describe it, you don't fully believe it. That God must fully pay the price, fully cancel the debt, fully free the prisoner, fully shine the light, fully quicken the dead, fully pour out the Spirit, fully draw unto Himself, or we are lost and dead and hopeless. How all conclusive, inclusive could it be? All of grace. When we read in verse 8 and 9 that we are saved by grace through faith and it says, and this not from yourselves, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. What is the this referring to? And this is not from yourselves. What is the this referring to? What in your mind do you think? Is it the salvation? Well, certainly. Is it the grace? Yes. Is it the faith that this is also not of yourselves? And is it the works that are produced from that faith that is genuine? I believe that Paul is saying here that it's all of the above. That the whole thing is all of grace. And that if we do not believe that indeed all of the salvation and the grace and the faith and the works and anything that comes out of our life that is of redeemable value, if it's not all of grace, then somehow there's just that little place where we can boast. And we can say, well, I contributed. Paul is referring to this in this way. He's, he's structured the sentence in such a way to remove any trace, any odor of self-effort and of self-righteousness. Sinclair Ferguson said it this way. He said that faith is indeed our response, but it is not our contribution. I'm not denying that there is volition involved. Nobody comes kicking and screaming into the kingdom. Everyone that ever is going to be in heaven is going to be choosing Jesus as the supreme treasure of over all other treasures. But we could not choose Jesus had it not been for him choosing us, had it not been for him working in our lives, awakening us from the dead. Because dead men don't do anything. They're unresponsive until we were quickened. Paul is trying to communicate this. 
one of the counterfeit you see of grace is, is good works. The counterfeit of this grace is God, is good works, things that we do. Some part of self in the equation. I've heard people maybe even say things like, why don't those foolish people just believe and be saved? Why can't they see that Jesus is the only way? I shudder when I hear something like that. Could there be some boasting in that statement? Could there be somebody saying in that that we had the sense to believe? Why don't they? Self-righteousness, this idea of me contributing, paying my way somehow is not only by, vir- by virtue of my sinful pride that is difficult to receive anything absolutely of grace, but it's also drilled into us from the time we're born in a hundred ways where we receive the popular notion, the idea, indeed, that we are acceptable to God because of how we live. The popular notion that, indeed, good deeds and self-righteous moralism is the way. A guy by the name of Michael Spencer has written this, that many churches today are in danger of adopting a spirituality that has Jesus on the cover, but not in the book. When I was 19 years old, my brother sent me a copy of Fyodor Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, this Russian classic. And there's a story in, in The Brothers Karamazov that I think tips off the inherent belief that is in our culture in, about good deeds being the reference point for salvation. It is so insidious, it is so subtle, but it it creeps into our thinking. And so the story, the author Dostoevsky tells a story about an old peasant woman who was wicked to the core. In fact, so wicked that she dies, and there was not one single good deed that she leaves behind. Can you imagine someone so wicked that they didn't in their entire lifespan do one good deed? That's the way he describes her. Everything she did in life, she did for herself. What she could take, she would take. What she did not have to give, she did not give. And as the story is told, this wicked woman dies. The devil seizes her soul and plunges her into the lake of fire. And Dostoevsky continues the story this way. And so her guardian angel stands and wonders before God what good deed of hers he could remember to tell God. This is the guardian angel speaking. She once pulled up an onion in her garden, he said, and she gave it to a beggar woman. And God answered the guardian angel, you take that onion then and you hold it out to her in the lake of fire and let her take hold and be pulled out. And if you can pull her out of the lake, let her come to paradise. But if the onion breaks, then the woman must stay where she is. The angel ran to the woman and held out the onion to her. Come, he said, catch hold and I'll pull you out. He began cautiously pulling her out and he had just about pulled her right out when the other sinners in the lake, seeing how she was being drawn out, began to catch hold of her so as to be pulled out with her. But she was being a very wicked woman. She began to kick at them. And as she kicked, she said, I'm to be pulled out, not you. It's my onion, not yours.
And as soon as she had said it, the onion broke and the woman fell into the lake and she is burning there to this day. And the angel wept and went away, end quote. I don't know a lot about Fyodor Dostoevsky's beliefs. I don't know of a time in all of his novels and writings that he actually condenses what he believes about Scripture and God into one statement. But I can tell from many of his stories that he did not understand the concept of grace. He did not understand the concept of grace alone. Salvation by grace alone through faith is hard for us to understand and receive. And we see inherent in this story the necessity of salvation through grace, for we see how even the smallest good deed done in the flesh is a cause for boasting among those who do not understand grace. And even the faith to believe in the grace could be a cause for boasting. And how we need God to reveal to us, to increase our capacity, to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know Him better, so that we would never, ever boast in anything but in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and in His mercy to snatch sinners from that lake of fire. It is all of grace. Paul says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. If we could pay our own way, if there was some mechanism that God allowed where we could pay our own way, contribute to our own redemption, our own soul's eternal well-being, if we could pay our way, if there's a means by which God would accept righteous deeds and sacrificial living and good works and all the things that go along with it as payment to cleanse our souls, how far could it get us? That's the question. Take the most devout person you have ever met or heard of. Take the most spiritually minded, wonderful person that you could think of. How far would their good deeds go in saving their souls? When I was in Thunder Bay, I would, I would use the illustration of the sleeping giant to, to illustrate this. You stand on the harbor front in Thunder Bay and you look out and I think it's about 60 kilometers and you see the sleeping giant, this land peninsula. It's a, it's a provincial park and you see it out there and, and, and you can imagine that if, if people were to try to jump from, from Thunder Bay Harbor to the sleeping giant, uh, uh, the best athlete might take a running jump off the pier and get 25 feet Maybe a, a senior might get five or six feet. But if someone was up in a helicopter 2,000 feet up looking down, all it would look like was a bunch of little people splashing in the water at the edge of the harbor, and the sleeping giant is still 60 kilometers away. You see, that's what it looks like when we talk about salvation or anything that we contribute to our salvation, anything that we could do. It is absolutely, the Bible says in Isaiah that our best, our righteousness is like filthy rags. You either cling to Jesus or you don't have salvation. There is nothing in the afterlife that would, would be inherent in you that would make God want to love you more. And if you are in Jesus Christ, there's nothing that you could ever do that would make Him love you less 
Because you see, your righteousness does not depend on you. You might live in a performance orientation. You might think that one day you're closer to God and another day when you're not doing so well spiritually, you're far from God. That's heresy. You're in Jesus Christ or you're not in Jesus Christ. It's all about Him, folks. It's all about Him. That's the gospel. That's the gospel of grace. There's nothing I do or could do that could merit it. The search for Malaysian Air Flight 370 that disappeared on March the 8th is being called the most complex and difficult search for a missing plane in all of aviation history. Carrying 239 people, two, two Canadians. Disappeared somewhere between Malaysia and Vietnam en route to Beijing. They said it was flying seven hours off course when they last had contact. Potential debris found in the South Indian Ocean. Lately I've read, seen news that say maybe that's the wrong place to look, maybe it's further north and so on. Malaysian Prime Minister announced on Monday that beyond any reasonable doubt the plane has crashed and there are no survivors. This is an awful, awful accident, awful tragedy. <laughs> Imagine that the, the pilot maybe could land that plane. Imagine that he was able to land it but, but the plane disappeared below the ocean. But meanwhile, all these people are swimming. Some of them that were non-swimmers would die instantly. Some of them would maybe last a half an hour to an hour. Maybe there was a world-class swimmer on board. Maybe he could last or she could last a day or two days. Maybe make it 50 miles in that kind of frigid water or that kind of rough sea. But friends, the point I'm making is Nothing they could do could save themselves if that were the case. A thousand miles from land. I do not share this story to make light of the reality of somebody's pain. Loved ones that are sitting in China or in Malaysia wondering about their loved ones. Wondering if they'd ever see them. how they died, when they died, if they died. I share this story simply to underline that there is a rescue mission that only Jesus Christ can conduct. And regardless of how righteous any one of us might be in our own abilities, in our own merit, we are still all alike. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So we're saved by grace and we're saved through faith. The second point I want to share this morning is that we are saved from good works and we're saved for good works. We see this in verse 10. What does it mean to be saved from good works? Well, what I mean by that is that God in his mercy by making it all about grace saves us from the 
tyranny, the impossibility, the hopelessness, the futility, and the lie of ever thinking that one person could somehow be postured closer to God than another person. You see, the grace factor levels the the playing field around the cross. It is absolutely level. There's nobody that gets a head start in this world. All of us come as absolute paupers and poverty-stricken before God. That's why Jesus begins the beatitude, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. And you see... We come before God and He removes all of that, the, those factors, those human ideas, this performance orientation. And if you're a Christian, then God has made you alive and He's raised you up and He's placed you in Jesus and He could not love you more and He could never, never love you less. So you're saved from the futility of trying to please God in your own efforts by obedience to the law, by thinking that you can muster what it is taking. And the key distinction here is is where do you place the good works? The gospel is the gospel or it's not the gospel depending on where the good works are placed. Are they placed upon me as a necessity to bring to God before I am acceptable? Or are they, are, they, are they given to me as a result of being made acceptable in Jesus Christ? We're saved from good works, but we're also saved for good works. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, and God prepared them in advance for us to do. What a powerful verse this is. The word workmanship in Greek is the word poema, where we get our word poem from. It literally means that which has been made. And actually in in literature, it's used to describe not just a poem or a piece of art, but any kind of handiwork, a statue, a sculpture, a song, a painting. It's a piece of art. We, the Bible says, are God's workmanship. We are His masterpiece. And even as I say that, I'm mindful of the fact that there are those in this world that would love to hear verse 10 and would love to run away with it and use it to somehow prop up our our fatiguing self-image. I am a masterpiece. As if it's all about me instead of drawing attention to the, the master of the masterpiece. You see, God is on the spotlight. If a poem has been written, the poem doesn't draw attention to itself, but the poet. It's not about the painting, it's about the painter. It's not about the sculpture, it's about the sculptor. It's not about the song, it's about the musician. It's not about the building, it's about the architect. You see, we're His workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, and God prepared them in advance, and He gets the glory. So the same grace that laid hold of us when we were dead in sin made us alive, saved us, gave us the eyes of faith. That same grace is the producer of good works through our lives. Just, lead, just surrender your life to God and follow His lead. He's going to make you into a masterpiece. He's got a blank canvas when you're born and He begins to do His work in Christ Jesus. The wonderful thing about this text is the way that Paul is painting believers and the church of Jesus Christ. He's painting it like it's an art gallery. The church is like an art gallery. 
And God wants to display the glory of his character. Look at how beautiful my mercy is. Look at how wonderful my love is and my truth and my holiness. And, and God is, is painting on the canvas of your life everything that is the wonderful, glorious image of Jesus. And your, your canvas is going to shine the hue and color and texture of God in a way that my life will not. And it's going to be attractive to other people that my life will not attract. But God is the author. God is the painter. And he gets the glory. Ferguson, Sinclair Ferguson, describes it more like the church being a workshop. The divine painter is working on the canvas. We're his masterpiece. The potter is molding the clay. The, the master singer is writing the song. The poet is forming the lyrics and lines. And one day there's going to be a final exhibition. Can you imagine? Isn't that what Paul says in verse 7? Paul says in verse 7, Because in the coming ages, he will show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. See, see that's what he's all about. He's, he's working on you. He's working on you and I, and he, and he wants his life to be imprinted so hard on your life that, that one day he's, gonna, he's already displaying you to the world, even though you're incomplete. But one day he's going to make an exhibition and he's going to show all of the realities that are spiritual and physical, the glories, the riches of his incomparable grace. As we come and sing a song uh, to conclude the service, how do you respond to a message like this? I feel like we've been on holy ground. We've been around the throne of God. And it's all of grace. One day Charles Spurgeon was asked, what was his part in salvation entering into this whole discussion? And what Spurgeon said, he said, my part was running. And God's part was chasing me down. Do you believe today that it is all of grace? If you're a Christian this morning, do you understand that? And my prayer this morning would be that we humble ourselves, that any boasting is excluded, any pride, and that we would, for, the, for the, maybe some of us the first time, see that salvation in its completeness, the grace and the faith and the works and anything that comes out of our lives is all part of that gift of God which we've received in Jesus Christ. And what, what better response could there be than to take off your shoes and say, Oh God, how awesome is your love. And to live for him. That God would create a, a deeper capacity for us to be able to know that love and live it out. May God bless us.